Do you like Vikings? Do you like medieval history? Do you like Iceland? Do you like sheep? Wait, do you like sh- sheep? Where's that coming from? <laughs> well, there's a lot of stuff about sheep in what we do. It's so. not a selling point, though, is it? Well, for all the ovophiles out there, it is. Uh, okay, let's try it again. I'm going to say, do you like Iceland? And then you say something about the violence and bloodshed that make the sagas feel like action movies. Okay, I can do that. Hey, do you like Iceland? Do you like complex, sometimes generational feuds fueled by the honor culture of a small-scale society in the medieval north? <laughs> well, that's not great. <laughs> Too much? Yeah, a little forced. Uh, I mean, it's better than do you like sheep? <laughs> well, I mean, to, to be fair, the feuds often involve disputes over sheep, but uh, l- let me uh-huh. let me clean it up here. Do you like feuds about sheep and personal honor? Do you like movies about gladiators, Jimmy? <laughs> <laughs> Well, if if your answer to any of these questions is yes, you'll want to join us for Saga Thing, a podcast where we review the sagas of medieval Iceland. For over a decade, we have been telling the stories of Iceland's first settlers and their families. And their feuds over sheep. And in each episode, we break down a different saga, unraveling its intricate plot, discussing the characters, and providing historical context to transport you back to a time of warriors, kings, and incredible feats of both martial and legal prowess. And don't worry if you're new to the world of the sagas. We're here to make it accessible and entertaining for everyone. And when we're done reviewing each saga, we take it to the saga thing, where we provide an official body count and judge the saga for things like best bloodshed, nicknames, and notable witticisms. We weigh the actions of the heroes and villains, sending one into exile and welcoming the other into our esteemed halls of thingmen. So, if you like medieval stuff, and want to know more about what Vikings did when they were at home, well, you'll want to join us for a saga or two. Or possibly 40. On Saga Thing. Oh, uh, we didn't say our names. I'm John, by the way. Oh, and I'm Andy. (laughs) And believe it or not, we're actual professors who talk about this stuff for a living. Somehow, that's true. We're both doctors, (laughs) but only doctors of medieval studies. Right, please don't bring us your sick sheep and ask what's wrong with them. And we definitely don't know anything about that rash, but you should get that looked at. But we do know Vikings, though. So grab a hornful of meat and join us. Check out Saga Thing. Hello, and welcome to Pontifex. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 130, Pope Marinus II. Thank God. I would. I just had like a tiny panic because I do not know where the Saltmarsh book went. <laughs> it's not a John. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You're okay for... How long are you okay for? This is the question we now need to answer. When is our next Pope John? Because you're going to have to find it. I can tell you this is a Johnful era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you get like one more episode after this and then you're going to have to find the book. <laughs> well, you know what? If we can't find it, I will switch to the Descent into Avernus demon names. Yeah, oh, that would be good. Okay, I'm going to tell you that in the next like 15 episodes, there are seven Johns. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. All right. Yeah. That's going to happen. But this is not John. This is Marinus. And does Mm -hmm. that name ring any particular bells of oddity or anything to you? Like, 
uh, I don't know, boats <laughs> and the sea and also Maid Marian. Where are we going with this? <laughs> okay, it's totally fine. I would not expect you to remember this, but <laughs> just making you flail for a minute is yeah. great. <laughs> So like we covered in Pope Marinus the first episode, the papal name Marinus was in many sources erroneously recorded as Martinus. Oh, Martin. You remember that? Yes. No. He, he sometimes. <laughs> so sometimes Pope Marinus the second is called Martinus or Martin the third when he is in fact a Marinus and not a Martinus. So another naming confusion issue, and what this means is that there is no Pope Martin II or Martin III, and our next Martin will actually go straight to being Martin IV because of this whole shenanigans. Okay. Interesting. And boats and married maid Marion. <laughs> yep, and boats. Don't forget about boats. Well, let's see how you feel Do you, if you think he's a Bodhi guy after <laughs> my next sentence here, which is, Marinus was born in Rome, and if we're to take the author of Sex Lives of the Pope's Nigel Cawthorn's word for it, he was, quote, begat of a common woman and the son of a necromancer. Hey, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had the same response when I read this. What had happened? <laughs> well, what happened was that I looked at Nigel Cawthorn's book because this man just loves throwing things out with no citation or like indication of where he got this. He loves just an uncredited scandalous line. So <laughs> where that came from is entirely up for debate, but apparently begat of a common woman and son of a necromancer for no reason. That's just that. But perhaps what we can take from this without all of the drama, potentially, is that maybe he wasn't noble. And if that's true, he's our first pope from the common people in quite some time. So it would be notable if we knew anything for sure. Yeah, considering. God, it's been a while. Yeah, it's been a long time. So at some point, he entered the church, and eventually he became the cardinal priest of San Ciriaco Alterme, which is the titular church built into the baths of Diocletian at the end of the 5th century. And this was not the only church that gets built in the baths over the years, by the way. It still houses at least one basilica, one church, and one part of the National Roman Museum. So these buildings are getting well used. Good. Now, one of the most notable things about Marinus might not have actually happened during his papacy. The sources are a little unclear or confused about when this took place. So we're going to talk about it here before we get into what he did as Pope. Because I think this makes the most sense, even if the sources seem to disagree. So apparently, Marinus had a particularly interesting encounter with the future saint and archbishop of Augsburg, Ulrich of Augsburg. Now, the reason that the sources on this are a little confused is because in many of the sources, including Ulrich's biographer, they suggest that this meeting happened in 909, which would have been when Ulrich was about 19 years old, and long before Marinus was pope, 
by about 30 years. And importantly, when this meeting occurred, it is said that Marinus predicted that Ulrich would one day be the Archbishop of Augsburg, which of course he would, which would make Marinus a psychic. <laughs> okay. Son of a necromancer, you know, all of this. Or, you know, maybe holy divination, but we got to run with it. Miracles. But if this is true, it's also good evidence that perhaps it happened before Marinus was pope because Ulrich is actually appointed as archbishop in 923, 19 years before Marinus becomes pope. So, quoting from Horace K. Mann, when Ulrich reached Rome, he was well received by Marinus, who asked him of what nationality he was. Told that he was a German of Augsburg and attached to the household of Adelbaron, the bishop of that city, Marinus at once assured him that that prelate was dead and that he was destined to succeed him. The saint expressed his profound astonishment at what he had heard and his disinclination to become bishop. Well, replied Marinus, if you will not accept the bishopric now when it is intact, you will have to take it when it is in ruins, and you will have to restore it. So, at some point, this potential just cardinal priest, maybe, Marinus, had a vision about Ulrich of Augsburg becoming archbishop. And this is true, because Ulrich would be a very important and influential archbishop who would later be canonized in 993 by Pope John XV, making him the first saint to have been officially canonized by a pope. Pontifact! Yes, it is. Isn't this weird, though? Because up until this point, saints were canonized in, like, general councils by local bishops in response to popular veneration. Mm -hmm. This is something we associate so strongly that only the pope can do. But it's not until the 12th century or so that canonization of saints becomes the exclusive purview of the popes. And it's not until 993 that we have the first saint officially canonized by a pope. It's just a little bit strange. But anyways, let's get on to his actual papacy. Following the violent death of our last pope, Stephen VIII, Marinus was chosen to succeed, again by Alberic of Spoleto, patrician of Rome. We do not know why he chose Marinus, but if we're to take the accounts of Bartolomeo Platina and Cesare Baronius, Marinus, quote, imitated the meekness and peaceable carriage of Stephen. For being made pope, he laid aside his thoughts of war and employed his mind in religious matters, repairing churches that were ready to fall with age, and relieving the poor with his charity. So this would suggest that Alberic might have chosen him for his commitment to peace and his focus on the practical religious administration of the city and for being a total pushover, which we know they really like. They want a small-time pope who had no designs on regaining independence from the patrician, who would be obedient and biddable. Which would be important if our last pope had, in fact, been involved in the assassination attempt against Alberic. However, I just want to point out that Platina says that Marinus is imitating the peaceable carriage 
of Steven and the meekness of Steven. So clearly, at least Platina thinks that Steven was innocent of all of that plotting. Okay. Which is fair. Now, Marinus was consecrated as Pope on October 30th, 942. And from that quote above, we also get a sense of how Marinus would spend the majority of his papacy, rebuilding dilapidated churches in Rome and tending to the poor. Good Pope things. Now, Marinus also notably continued the appointment of Archbishop Frederick of Mainz as his papal legate for Francia and confirmed his extended authority to bring about stricter religious discipline, particularly in support of those ongoing monastic reforms we've been talking about. You may remember Frederick because we last discussed him in Pope Leo VII's episode because he was the one who wanted to either expel or forcibly baptize all the Jews of Mainz. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. Yeah. Not great. Don't do that, sir. Yeah, even the Pope didn't want him to do that. In that episode, we also discussed that part of the motivation of appointing Frederick to this enhanced position was that the kings of East Francia, Henry the Fowler and then Otto, were quite religious and had been supporting significant monastic development and thusly the papacy wanted to ensure proper adherence. However, in the time since then, Frederick had become quite a vocal opponent to Otto and had actually been imprisoned for rebelling against and plotting to assassinate the king on several occasions. And yet, this is who the Pope is choosing to support. Which perhaps is foreshadowing for all the drama that is yet to come. But it won't come in this episode. Ah, drama soon, though. Oh, gosh. Like, the otters fry. The otters bring so much drama. Oh, drama otters. The city of Rome has so much drama in response to the otters. It's just, there's a lot of drama. (laughs) It's coming. Now, Pope Marinus was also very concerned with protecting the independence of monasteries and encouraging strict clerical discipline and issued various papal bulls of privilege to monasteries in Italy and in France. And in one particular case, he actually intervenes directly. In approximately 943, the Bishop of Capua, Sico, decided to seize a church in his bishopric that had been granted to the Benedictine monks in order to bestow it on one of his favorite deacons instead. The church in question had been granted to the monks by Pope Stephen VIII with the intention that they would use it to found a monastery. So to have it unceremoniously stripped away by a bishop who had no such authority to do so, especially to give it to one of his friends, displeased the Pope immensely. And so Marinus wasted no time in immediately interceding and wrote to Bishop Seco commanding that he not only return the church to the monks, but also to cease all contact with the deacon he wished to gift the church to. So not only can he not have it, you're not allowed to talk to him anymore. He's a bad influence. Oh, wow. Yeah. Marinus wasn't having it. Now I have one other thing too, and although this isn't something that impacts his papacy or is part of anything he did per se, 
Horace K. Mann has a very interesting little tidbit about Pope Marinus. Are you ready for it? Sure. (laughs) We know that he kept a private papal residence. Mm, Nice. Yeah, he had essentially a palace. And we know that it was within the palace originally built by Pope John VII in the ruins of the Domuscaiana on the Palatine Hill back in the 8th century. This is cool. Quoting him directly, modern archaeological research, which I have to laugh because this was modern archaeological research in the 1800s, has revealed the fact that the palace built by John VII out of the ruins of the northeastern section of the Domus Guyana, which overlooks the Forum and the Sacred Way, was apparently still habitable in his time. The latest bit of evidence regarding the real or nominal occupancy of the Palatine Episcopal residence by the popes came to light on November 8, 1883, during the excavation of the House of the Vestals. At the northeastern corner of the peristyle, the remains of a modest medieval dwelling were discovered, belonging to a high official of the court of Marinus II. This official must have been in charge of the Pope's rooms, which were placed amongst the ruins of the Domus Guyana. This is pretty cool. (laughs) I wish it was as cool to me as it seems to be to you. (laughs) I mean, this is cool because we have basically, we have ruins from antiquity Rome, of the Domus Guyana and the, you know, House of the Vestals, which was then appropriated by a pope in the 700s, in 705, to make a palace to actually house the popes, but then didn't get used that way. And now, 250 years later, is actually being used as a papal residence. So this echoes of history is very cool. So, according to the Encyclopedia of the History of Classical Archaeology by Nancy Thomas de Gramond, Pope John VII intended to make this palace the official residence for the popes at the time, and it just didn't work out. However, maybe he would be pleased to learn that at least one of his successors did live there, like I said, 250-some years later just kind of neat. It's also really cool to see a historical source that we use talk about modern archaeological discoveries in the 19th century, because it also dates our sources, which is unfortunate, but modern papal work is harder to find. (laughs) Awkward pause. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I'm trying to generate terrible otters. (laughs) Are you back on the otters again? I am. Trust me. I'm going to lose you so many times when we start talking about all the autos. <laughs> there are so many of them. Anyways, to wrap this up, because yes, this is the kind of episode we're doing. Pope Marinus II died in May of 946. And unfortunately, we don't have any cause of death to talk about. He was buried in the portico of St. Peter's. His tomb was destroyed for a new St. Peter's and no epitaph survives. So with that, it's now time to rate him. Okay. Papatum infallium. So he defends the independence of monasteries and their status of privilege of being only subject to the Pope, demonstrated most clearly in his return of the church from Bishop Seco of Capua to the monks. Maybe he predicted and encouraged Ulrich of Augsburg to continue his clerical career. 
But otherwise, meekness, peaceable carriage. Okay. That's about it. There's not much. What do you want to give him? Um, I don't know. Maybe like... It's like a one. Oh, yeah. It's not bad, though. That's the problem. Like, I don't know if I want to go that low because it's not terrible. He's not doing bad things. He's just not doing great things. So maybe I can be convinced into it, too. Maybe. No. Let's go with, like, I can only do a one. Okay. Well, then he'll get a three, and I'll feel better about that overall. Fructus prohibitum. There is no scandal about him, but he may be the son of a common woman and the son of a necromancer. We could potentially say scandal. It's not him, and unless you want to try and I don't... play the psychic card. No. Yeah, no. There's nothing. Seculari impactum. Now, this is up for debate because in choosing to support Frederick of Mines as Archbishop and Papal Legate, Marinus may have been making a political statement about the reign of King Otto, but we don't have any evidence to actually suggest that that might be so, and most of the trouble that Frederick's going to get into with Otto is going to be after his confirmation, so it's hard to say. Okay, maybe like a one again? If you want to give him a one, I got to give him a zero because he can't get more than one in this category. Okay, a half point? We think you can't start doing halves now. <laughs> you could just get a one. <laughs> Let's mess up the entire rating system. Let's do it. Actually, why do we have a 0. 0.5 in one category? Oh, in that category? I don't know. <laughs> No, we have one zero point five in Scandal. Episode 87, John the Sixth got a 0. 0.5 on Scandal. I don't remember why. I'm going to have to look that up. Did he do something half? Or is that? No, that can't even be the something role. Anyways, he'll get a one in Seculari Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. Now... There was actually, or is potentially, a relatively contemporary image of Marinus out there. It was a miniature within a collection of 12th century church documents presented to the Vatican by the Bishop of Tivoli in the 17th century. Okay, miniature? Is this a miniature painting or like a miniature carving? What is this miniature? I think it's describing a miniature painting because we actually have a description Okay. of this thing. I could not find an actual photo of it, so we're going to compare his description from this image to the image we have, but it sounds like a painting, which is, it says, one of the miniatures represents Pope Maris II, seating and giving a privilege to Hubert, Bishop of Tivoli. The Pope is represented as clean-shaven and wearing the tonsure. He is clad in a red robe, over which is a tunic of a brick red. Wearing the tonsure so he can take it off. <laughs> yeah, I'm wearing a oh, tonsure wig. Oh, it's a wig. Why not? It could be. People wear beard wigs now. It's weird, but I guess you could do it. <laughs> he is clad in a red robe over which is a tunic of a brick red. A blue chasuble edged with green lace completes his costume. He wears the pallium on his shoulders. 
His feet, shod with red sandals, rest on a yellow cushion. So like I said, this existed in 1885 or so. We do not have a picture of it now. I did look rather extensively, but what I'm going to say is it really doesn't line up with the image we have from St. Paul's outside the walls. So here you go. All right. Ah, look at that tonsure wig that doesn't (laughs) connect at all. It cannot possibly be his real hair. Anyway. Lace front or something. (laughs) Wow, that's a super nice lace front. (laughs) He's also super shruggy in this one. It looks like he's sinking into his shoulders and his traps. Maybe he's cold. (laughs) Is he cold or is he grumpy? You know, kind of that, you know, because he also looks, he either looks very grumpy or like he's got the worst thousand yard stare that I've ever seen. (laughs) My my grandma, Teresa, used to always be like, ooh, the back of my neck is so cold. It'd be like 90 degrees outside, and she'd be like, ooh, the breeze is cold on the back of my neck. So what you're saying is Pope Marinus is having a problem with the temperature of the back of his neck, which explains <laughs> maybe not only the shrug, but the lace front tonsure wig. <laughs> yes. Maybe he should just make the tonsure wig a little longer so he gets more coverage on the back of his neck and he won't be so cold and look so shruggy and squanty. So <laughs> Squanty. You know, if I say the word squanty, <laughs> it may be a Briism, but it's one of those Briisms that's very evocative. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think that this image is worth? And what do you think that the miniature could have been worth? Oh, the miniature probably would have been worth way more because it sounds exciting. And it's going to be tiny, and I love tiny things. It sounds detailed. Yeah. Again, you and Jordan both. (laughs) He (laughs) loves the idea of miniatures and gets very excited by them. Oh my gosh, the amount of people I'm following that make miniatures. You guys are same brain. (laughs) Show me your tiny roses and your tiny baked goods. Thank you. Oh, that kind of miniatures, too. He's more like a, you know, Beetlejuice where they've got the miniature of the whole town. Oh, that's He's good, like, too. I would so do that. I, well, I mean, the tiny baked goods need to go in the tiny town. In the tiny baker in the tiny town, mm-hmm. of course. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, TikTok showed me that there was a miniature convention where people sell oh miniatures. Oh, my God. No. Uh, I guess... You have to take me and Jordan now. <laughs> you don't need more stuff, right? <laughs> you don't need a new hobby to collect things. <laughs> but they will be small things and will take up less room. This is true. <laughs> I have to show you my miniature tiny rubber duck that someone gave me in the Universal Studios bathroom. Beautiful. <laughs> I complimented her on her bag and she was really excited about my spirit jersey, which is a pretty rare spirit jersey from Disneyland. So we started talking for a minute. She's like, wait, before you go, what's your favorite color? And I'm like, orange. And she pulled out the tiniest little miniature rubber duck that glows in the dark. And it's orange. And she's like, Uh, have an emotional support (laughs) duck friend. Beautiful. What a great person. (laughs) They may never listen to this. And if they do, they better know it's them. (laughs) They probably will. Lady with the excellent Halloween stitch bag. At Halloween Horror Nights. <laughs> I'll make friends everywhere. In you a bathroom, do. why not? <laughs> so what do we think? Um, 
I, uh, I would like to give him a four for just, he looks like he's in like 10 layers. <laughs> he does look like he's like us. <laughs> like he definitely looks like when Joey Tribbioni put on all of his shirts. Oh, when he put on all of Chandler's shirts. Oh, you're right. <laughs> I'm wearing everything you own. Yeah, definitely. He does look like he's in 10 layers and I can relate to that. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think maybe I, his expression cracks me up. So I think I'll go a little higher than you. I think I'll give him, I'll give him a six. He's so grumpy. He's still cold. Not enough shirts. <laughs> look, like I just told you before we started recording, I had to take like four layers <laughs> off to record because it's the only time I ever get warm. It's true. I don't need that many layers because my sweatshirt is fleece-lined. Yeah, that won't stop me from putting on more layers. (laughs) All right, so that gives him a 10. And when we divide that out, he gets a 2.5, which is almost as high as he scored this entire episode, which is kind of sad. If we had the miniature, it would probably be more. Mm Mm-hmm. Tempest Pontificus. October 30th, 942 to May 946. Three and a half years and a score of 0.875. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round. No. And that brings us to his total score, which is a not impressive at all. 7.375. Oh. That is very, very low. Yeah, he's currently in 113th place, and this is episode 130. So, not great. Just kind of have to run with that. I mean, only a couple episodes ago, we had a Pope who fell in 124th place with Leo VII. So this is not a great era. If you are not a scandalous Pope during the pornocracy, you are an incredibly forgettable Pope. Which sort of answers the next question I have for you, Fry, which is, is he papally enough, possessy enough, with an impact enough for a papal bull? Really? No. I have to ask for the format, but yeah, it's it's no. (laughs) It's not very exciting. We're sorry, Marinus, but at least you've caused enough kerfuffle in the system that there isn't a Pope Martin III. So you will be talked about more than some other popes. Kinda. Maybe. But that's pretty much it for our episode. This brings us to the end where we have thank yous to make and we have temporal punishments to absolve. So first off, we would like to thank Kelly B., Eugene Rosso, Yogan Shoger, and Dr. Barry Torch. Ego te absolvo. I would also like to thank Dr. Barry Torch again, and Dr. Rutger Kramer for sending me sources or offering to send me sources and helping me obtain sources, which has been absolutely wonderful. So many sources. Thank you both. They are just the most wonderful, and I adore both of them. So thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to this episode, and we will see you next time. We won't see anyone. Well, that's true. I'm not even seeing you while we're doing this. No. (laughs) We'll be in your ear holes next time. That sounds awful, too. (laughs) Go back. Come join us next time. (laughs) 
<laughs> Goodbye. Bye. Pontifex is edited by Greg Gassman. Greg is the host of the fabulous papal history podcast, Popular History, where you can also find cardinal numbers, ranking the cardinals of the Catholic Church, and coming up soon, Habemus Pointsum, where Greg and I will discuss all of the papal transitions that he loves so much. If you need to reach Greg, you can do so at popularhistory at gmail.com. Get it? It's like popular, but with an E for the popes. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us at pontifexpod at gmail.com. And we're pontifexpod on all social media platforms. If you'd like to support the show, consider subscribing to Pontifex on Patreon. Checking out our research wishlist at tinyurl.com slash pontifexwishlist or making a one-time donation at paypal.me slash pontifexpodcast. If you'd like to support us in other ways, rating and reviewing the show on iTunes makes a world of difference.